I just want to add my word of thanks to everyone that helped served in whatever capacity this past week with the Vacation Bible School. If you compare last year with this year, we saw almost a 40% increase in the number of uh, children that we had the chance to work with. So that's pretty amazing. So if you helped with literature distribution or registration or um, making all that awesome, those awesome chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, man, it was a great week. We had a lot of fun. And uh, there's something about just having to, all that time to spend together. I know everybody has a full-time job, and then you're out uh, serving uh, till 8 o'clock at night, and it was hot this week. Uh, but thank you a ton for helping with that. And I want to issue an invitation to you. We, we invited all of our um, families that were there this week. We're doing our uh, July Family Fun Night is Minute to Win It Games tonight in the Fellowship Hall. So there will be 60-second challenges. Some of it will be coordination. Some of it might be eating something nasty. Um, some of it might be, you know, doing something silly. But there are some really nice gift cards to Chick-fil-A, QT, some different things like that for our winners. And so you have to volunteer. We've got about 15 different challenges. And so they take a little, some of them will take a little while to set up. But even if you don't volunteer, if, um, if you like to laugh, I think there will be a lot of those tonight. So uh, come tonight. We're hoping that um, maybe some of our VBS families will join us and we'll have the opportunity to make some new friends. Well, today we are continuing our series on um, kind of heroes of the faith. And we've titled this series, Superheroes Can't Save You. There's a temptation sometimes to uh, idolize our heroes and to, to maybe not see their weaknesses. And so when it comes to the Bible and it comes to heroes in the Bible specifically, we are to learn from their example as they pursue Christ, not to be like them because they are sinners in need of a Savior as well. Today we come to the story of Joseph, not Joseph in the New Testament, the stepfather of Jesus, Joseph in the Old Testament, who really was an incredible leader. And there's not a lot that's bad about Joseph, uh, besides the fact that he's a human being like you and I, and we know that he's a sinner. The story about Joseph, though, the storyline, focuses on, I believe, the, the idea of self-control. Now, hold on just a second, because I know I just said a four-letter word. When we hear the word self-control, what's the very first thing that comes to your mind? Boring, dull, perhaps a little bit repressive. Yet, I want you to understand everything. Every great feat that we celebrate, whether it's Odell Beckham Jr., you know, boom, grab, grabbing it as he falls out of the end zone, or, you know, Michael Phelps, or... Um, a violin virtuoso, or some kind of scientist or researcher that comes up with some kind of cure for a disease or some malady. They don't just wake up and Google how to do this stuff. The, the, the way that they have gotten to the place that they are at is through an intentional pursuit of self-control, self-discipline, and the same thing that is true for all of these feats that we celebrate in human achievement is certainly true for our spiritual achievement too. You will not amount to much of a disciple without self-control. It's been said that the entire reason, parents, this is a good one, okay? Because um, it took me a while. I used to think that discipline was an end in itself. Parents, if you understand that the purpose of parental discipline is for self-discipline, then whenever your kids get it, you can stop. Now, for some of you, that might be a long time, you know, um, it happens. But the whole purpose of discipline is for self-discipline. The purpose of us instilling discipline in our lives as Christians is so that we are increasingly controlled by the person that we say is the Lord of our life. And the tragedy of the day is everybody claims to be a Christian. Nobody seems to be content to have Jesus as Lord. I think I can run my life a whole lot better than Jesus can. 
that is inconsistent for us to hold to that position. So we're going to see a journey in self-control in Joseph's life. Now, here's the challenge. When we do a biographical study like this, um, you're talking Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, 13 chapters, 14 chapters. And uh, in a room this size, you know, these people over here, maybe their Bible knowledge is really deep. And these people over here, maybe this is the first time that you're in church. That's a challenge to cover 14 chapters of Scripture, recognizing that everybody has varying levels of biblical knowledge. So I'm going to do my best to give you the little proverbial sip from the fire hydrant to talk about Joseph's life. And we're really going to look at three or four snapshots from his life. The very first point I want you to get is that Joseph's earliest aspirations to leadership. So he aspires to be a leader. And these earliest aspirations in Joseph's life earn him nothing but hard times. Have you ever had to lead anything and it was difficult? Uh, listen, if, if leadership was easy, everyone would be doing it, right? The, the very fact that God calls you to lead something means that plans aren't going to work out. People are going to be frustrating and obstacles are going to arise. And so Joseph figures that out at a very early age. He has spied, I'm going to do great things for God. And yet the only thing that he actually sees is the result of his labors are hard times. So we begin in Genesis chapter 37. I want you to look at, at chapter 37, verse 2. It'll be on the screen behind me. And, and, and I want you to realize this. In um, oh Genesis 30, I think it is, 30 or 31, uh, Jacob's sons are listed. So the very first mention in a concordance, uh, kind of a dictionary, Bible dictionary, the very first mention of Joseph is going to be about uh, Genesis 30. But that's like all we get is like the birth certificate. The first story that we get of Joseph begins in chapter 37. And, and, and it starts with, verse 2 starts with this kind of this innocuous statement talking about Joseph, Jacob's generations. And then it goes into what's of interest for us. Joseph being 17 years old. Do we have any 17-year-olds here? I know we got at least one. Thanks, Ed. I see that hand. The buses will wait, the liar. Um, Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock, meaning not pasteurizing, pasturing. He is putting the flock to pasture. He is pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now that takes a little bit of explanation. Jacob had multiple wives, and so Joseph had a lot of half-brothers. Same dad, different moms. So he is calling out that there's a difference in the family. He is, you know, of, uh, he, is, he is flocking the flock, with, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his half-brothers, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Okay, let's stop for a second. Verse 2, first information that we find out about Joseph. Is this the kind of guy you want to invite to a dinner party? Why not? What's the very first thing we find out about Joseph? He is, at the worst, a tattletale, and at best, just a very blunt truth-teller. The boys, the, the, the sons of Zilpah and uh, Bilhah, are not doing something that they're supposed to do. And Joseph is only maybe too glad to tell dad, hey, they didn't do it the way you told them to do it. Uh, it's interesting for this to be the very first thing that we hear about Joseph. Now, the challenge is this is not the only thing we find out about Joseph in this little chapter. Look at verses 3 and 4. Now, Israel, which is God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons 
Because Joseph was the son of his old age. You know what that means? Joseph's the baby of the family. And if you are an older child, anybody have a younger sibling? Yeah, you know this is true. You know, little, the little one always gets doted on. They, they don't get spanked. They don't get disciplined. They get extra dessert. Everything is wrong. That's just the way it happens. So dad loves the baby, the family, a little bit more. And it says, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, everybody knows Joseph's got a coat of many colors. Most people don't know 37 verse 2, Joseph was a tattletale. So now, Joseph is a tattletale. Now, it's not just Joseph's words, it's Jacob's actions. Jacob loves him more and doesn't just prefer him with his, his affection, but prefers him with his actions. Makes him a coat of many colors. And when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, not dad, Joseph. And they could not speak peacefully to him. Now, here's, here's something that I think is, is helpful for you. Because I think there's a little bit of a misfortunate mistranslation related to this whole coat. Um, if, if the Bible says it was a coat of many colors, it had many colors. That's not the point. His brothers weren't mad because, you know, they had a gray robe and he had a red, white, and blue robe. You know, he had a pink robe and he's like, man, I like my pink robe. But like Joseph's got this really luxurious. It's not a question over um, what it's made of or what the color is. That's not the offense here. The word that is used for, for this robe is distinct. And here's what the distinction is. Most robes or outer tunics that were worn in the ancient Near East were short sleeves or sleeveless and typically uh, about knee level, which meant they were conducive for working. Your range of motion, I mean, you could, you could move around. It would work. The robe, in addition to being a multicolored robe, a many-colored robe, the word for robe indicates that this is a robe that extends to the ankles and to the wrists. So it is not short-sleeved or short-legged in any capacity. What that, what that means is that the robe that Joseph is giving, being given by his father was not a robe that was specifically for working. Joseph, perhaps because of his truth-telling on his brother's cut and corners, was, giving the man, was given the manager's position over his brothers. Now, can you understand why all the older brothers hate him so much? Now, dad loves him more. He got us in trouble, and now dad's gone and made him the manager. He's got a manager's coat, not a worker's coat. So Joseph's relationship is already strained with his brothers. It is strained because of his words. It's strained because of uh, Jacob's love and because of the coat that he gives him. But then now, as we move into verses 5 through 11, Joseph, remember how old he is? He's 17 years old. Joseph exhibits what I think is a naive insensitivity in telling his brothers about his dreams. He has these dreams. And here's the challenge. In his dreams, he is the hero. And his brothers are the chumps. The dreams that he's about to tell them, hey man, I had this really cool dream. You want to hear it? Not really. Well, I'm going to tell you anyways. In this dream, like I get exalted and y'all worship me. In an already strained relationship, probably not the wisest thing to do to tell a self-exalting and others humiliating story. Listen to how the Bible describes it. Verses 5 through 11. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, here, listen to this dream that I dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you crazy? Are you indeed going to reign over us? Are you going to rule us? 
So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The story doesn't stop there. Guess what? Dun, dun, dun. Joseph has a second dream. And he knows that his brothers hate him because of his dreams. Does he keep it in this time? No. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. And let me guess, you're going to tell us, right, Joseph? You betcha. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. Father rebuked him, but then went, Hmm, I wonder what's going on here. Was this kind of twisting the knife on Joseph's part, was it intentional? I don't know that it was. I mean, again, Joseph 17, let's cut him some slack. I think rather it's naive insensitivity. I think, I think Joseph knew that God was revealing something in the dream, that God had big plans for him and it involved leadership. And he just wasn't quite, his feet weren't quite big enough to fill the shoes that God had given to him. God was revealing, hey, this is going to happen. And Joseph's like, I'm ready to go. Let me tell everybody. I'm going to be this great leader, and even my mom and dad are going to bow down to me and all you, all you brothers. Not the right thing. So in verses 13 and 14, we're told that Joseph is kind of in that managerial role, told to go check on his brothers. They cut the corners. They're, they're not doing everything quite the way they were. Dad goes, hey, go check on them. And in verses 18 through 36, we find that, that Joseph finds that they're not where they're supposed to be, asks a local there, hey, have you seen these guys? And he sends them on a different direction, and he goes to see them. And you can almost imagine like an old-fashioned Western. You can, you can see Joseph on the horizon walking. And the brothers all gathered around here. And they go, oh, here comes that dreamer. And they can pick him out because he's got that, that big old long coat in the ancient Near East with all those colors. Yeah, that's Joseph. That's not anybody else. We know who it is. And it says that his brothers intended to kill him. They intended to kill him. Uh, but the oldest brother, Reuben, says, no, 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 no let's not kill him. That, that's bad. Let's find something else to do. So they throw him in a pit. Then Judah, who is the second oldest, says, hey, listen, we could actually profit off of this. Like if we kill him, there's no profit. Let's sell him off as a slave. And they do that. They see a caravan of Midianite traders coming and they throw, pull him out of the pit that they had thrown him into, sell him off into slavery, make money off of their brother. And then the cowards that they were, they weren't able, they didn't have the guts to actually kill their brother. So what they did afterwards to cover up their story, they took a coat, his coat and a goat, and they killed the goat, they ripped up the coat, and they did metaphorically to the goat in the coat what they wanted to do to their brother. Too cowardly to lay their hands on him, but let's cover it up and let's, let's take out the violence on these, this animal and this inanimate, inanimate object that we wanted to do, take out on our brother. What we find here in this, this earliest episode is that Joseph's lack of restraint his lack of self-control apparently dashes his dreams because where does he end up? He ends up in a pit. He gets sold off to be a slave. Now, the truth is, this is, this is a really weird statement to, to, for me to make, okay? Um, but as you read the story, God blesses Joseph everywhere he goes. And so you sit there and you go, um, does being sold into slavery in the ancient Near East sound like something you want to do? No. No. Despicable institution. Yet... In God's superintending providence, 
slavery doesn't turn out so bad for Joseph as you read the story. As we get to Genesis chapter 39, we find out that Joseph is bought by a very high-ranking official, a man by the name of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar happens to be the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. So this is like the minister of defense. I mean, you don't get much higher than that. And yet, uh, while it would seem that Joseph, with this great dream of leadership, tries to lead his brothers, they reject his leadership, throw him in a pit, sell him off into slavery, that dream's got to be dead. It would seem like God has abandoned him, yet nothing could be further from the truth. When you look at chapter 39, verses 1 through 6, you'll see how the storyline picks up. Now Joseph had been, had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, not only did Joseph sense God's presence, but everybody else sensed God's presence through Joseph as well. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him the overseer of his entire house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Man, isn't that like God? You know, you hear the old statement, if life gives you lemons, what are you supposed to do? Make lemonade. I don't know if that's a faithful saying or not, but here's, here's what I do know. God can take the most desperate situations and, and shine His goodness and His providence even in the midst of a man betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Joseph becomes uh, the executive, uh, you know, house. Uh, organizer. He, he becomes kind of the maitre d', the concierge for Potiphar's, who, who's a very significant official, and, and everything is super successful. Here's the problem. Is it possible to be too successful? Yeah. We are like a verse away from finding out that Joseph was too successful. Here's the deal. He was so successful that he succeeds in drawing the attention of his master's wife. It says, by the way, Joseph was a pretty strapping young man, and the eye of his master's wife caught him. And what we find out is here is another challenge, and here's another obstacle. The brothers were an obstacle. Potiphar's wife is an obstacle. And just as Joseph's ship rose to fame and fortune really quickly, he is about to be dashed on a rock that will sink him as equally quickly. Verses 7 through 10 talk about the uh, attempted seduction. After time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, she didn't beat around the bush, come lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to even be with her. 
This is an amazing thing, because if you go back to chapter 37, the original picture that we have of Joseph is that he is, at the very least, naive and insensitive. Now, you put a naive and insensitive person in a house with a seductive woman, and it doesn't sound like a recipe for success. In uh, chapter 37, he lacked self-control, yet in chapter 39, Joseph displays self-control in spades. He, He is able to resist a woman who is manipulative, who is coercive, and she is powerful. She is the wife of his master. And in that kind of culture, when anyone who is over you says what you have to do, you obey on the pain of death. Yet we see something of Joseph's moral convictions. While the woman thinks that this is a, you know, kind, of a, uh, kind of a sporty thing to do, hey, let's, let's do this thing. Joseph calls it out for what it is. He says it's a great wickedness. And while he's in Egypt as a slave and away from his family and from the promised land, the land of Canaan, he, he, he understands that living God's way is always the right thing to do. He's sensitive to God's way of living. And he even voices in his protestation to Potiphar's wife that he recognizes that he is both in debt to Potiphar for trusting him with everything in his household. And that, that not only would he be betraying that trust to Potiphar, but he would betraying He would be betraying the God that he says that he serves. How can I commit this great wickedness and deny my God? He owes Potiphar for his trust. He owes God for everything. And he says this as a slave. It's not just convictions that Joseph displays, but corresponding actions. It says that he wouldn't listen to her. He wouldn't be with her. And he avoided her. He said, listen, that woman is trouble. And just like in Proverbs where it says, hey, listen, young man, stay away from that woman. Joseph stays away from this woman. He keeps his hands off of a woman that has her hands all over him. The problem is this little avoidance strategy, this plan A that he has, doesn't quite work because knowing the conniving, manipulative, shrewd woman that Potiphar's wife is, she dismisses all the other servants except for Joseph. And Joseph's, you know, staying way over here. Potiphar's wife's over there. He's staying way over here. And all of a sudden, he goes into a new room, and Potiphar's Potiphar's wife is there. So he goes over here, and he gets over on the other side of the house. Guess what he finds out? She's over there, too. And it says that finally, she corners him, and she actually grabs him. She says, you're not getting away now. I've got you, young fella. And plan A is not working. And Joseph could say, God, I tried. She's got me now. What do I have to do? Like, beat her up to get away? No, no, no. He goes to plan B, and plan B is, paraphrased, run, forced run. Get out of there. He takes off. And here's the amazing irony with the whole Joseph story. What, what, what's part of the story that got Joseph in trouble with his brothers? His robe. What gets Joseph in trouble with his master? His cloak. Like, if I was Joseph, I would stop asking for outerwear for Christmas. He has some very serious issues with outerwear. Because here's what happens. He he does whatever he has to do to get out of his outer cloak to get away from her. And he flees, and she has it. That's called, in a court of law, evidence. And when her husband gets home, she says, listen, you don't hear about that little Hebrew slave he did? He assaulted me. He tried to rape me. And Potiphar's really in a tough spot. Because I have a feeling that Potiphar knows what kind of woman he's married to. Um, This is probably not the only instance where she was attempting at least unfaithfulness to him. And he loves this Joseph guy because what's happened to everything that he owns while Joseph is around? 
has been blessed. It's been successful. And so you see a bit of sympathy from Potiphar because instead of executing Joseph on the spot as would have been normal and expected, he throws Joseph in prison instead. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. And yet, <clears throat> Joseph has to learn a very painful lesson. He has repeatedly resisted this woman's uh, uh, um, approaches. And yet Joseph's pursuit of sanctification is rewarded with a sentence in prison. Hard to believe. God, I'm obeying you. And the reward for me, obeying you, is being stuck in prison. And yet here's this fascinating thing. As we start to look at the storyline of the Bible, we looked at Abraham last week. And Abraham flubbed it up every opportunity that he got. He, he perpetually lied about his wife being his sister. And yet we saw that God was so good that he rescued Abraham every time he told a lie. Joseph is almost the complete opposite. With the exception of the naive insensitivity, we, don't, we see Joseph doing things right. Joseph is doing things that God says are the right things. And yet he's still thrown in jail. And um, we, we see a, a full picture Abraham is a picture of a man who screws up and God rescues him. Joseph is a picture of a man who is faithfully obedient no matter what the cost is, even if it's jail. There's a lesson here for us. And, um, you know, um, oh, what's the movie that just came out with Will Smith? The uh, Aladdin, live-action Aladdin. And I hate to say this, and I hope, I hope it doesn't step on your toes, but I think, I think in our country... There are a lot of people who treat God like the genie. You know, give me my wishes. I don't owe anything to you, but you owe all kinds of things to me. And the truth is, you cannot serve God for what you think you will get from God. I'll say that again. You cannot serve God for what you think you might get for God. Because the truth is, whatever you expect to get is what really controls your heart and really is the Lord of your life. And that's not God. Think about that really carefully because there are people today in this room that if they get the wrong diagnosis would cease to worship God. There would be people in this room, you take this thing away from them and now God is bad. There are people in this room that if things don't go the way you think they should go, well, then God's off his rocker because I could run the world a whole lot better than God can. You cannot serve God for what you think you will get from him because he must be worth serving no matter the outcome, even if that means going to jail when you did everything right. Does God deserve that kind of obedience from you? Absolutely. So chapter 39 ends with Joseph apparently as low as he can go. He is a slave in Egypt, and now he is in jail. Can he go any lower? He is an imprisoned slave. Here's the thing that's funny. God is still with Joseph. And just as Joseph was favored over his brothers to be a manager, just as he was favored by Potiphar to be over everything in his household, chapter 39 ends with Joseph being elevated to a position where he manages the jail for the warden. Verses 19 through 23. It says this, uh, his master heard about it. Um, let's skip down to verse 21. Uh, master heard about it, throws him in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, Joseph was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord 
made it succeed. Here's the amazing thing, man. Joseph is just a glutton for punishment. He has been betrayed by his brothers. He has been slandered by a seductress. And while he's in prison, he's forgotten by a friend. There's another man who has fallen out of Pharaoh's favor and is thrown in jail, two of them. And Joseph successfully interprets their dreams. One is executed. One is restored to his position. And as he is walking out the prison door, he's like, Joseph, bro, I'm going to remember you. I'm going to get you out of here because you are a good dude, Joseph. I'm going to make sure I remember you. What was your name again? And completely forgets who Joseph is. He continually suffers at the hands of others, but eventually he gets out. Joseph takes his gift for interpreting dreams, and Pharaoh has a doozy of one. And, and the dream is not just a dream. It's a sign that God is giving him about an incredible uh, international famine that is about to happen. Joseph interprets it appropriately, and as we would come to expect, Joseph gets elevated to a position where Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything as his number two in the entire country. So here's what happens. Flashback to Joseph and his brothers, all the bad blood that's there. They're back in Canaan, uh, in the Holy Lands, and they're starving. And Jacob hears that there's food in Egypt, and he says, hey, I need you guys to go get food. Well, guess who's in charge of all the food distribution now? It really is a wonderful story. It's worth you reading Genesis 37 through 50, because I'm just giving you the highlights. It's Joseph. So there is a confrontation that God took decades to arrange. And the question that is before us is now, Joseph has power. Joseph has authority. And his brothers who had done this heinous evil to him have fallen completely and totally into his hands. What is he going to do? Here's what we find out. Joseph originally with his brothers had no self-control. Blurts out his dreams. Blurts out the truth. Joseph, in his imprisonment and in his, in his slavery, learns the hard lesson of self-control, and he demonstrates it superbly in his relationship with Potiphar's wife. Joseph learns self-control with others. Will he now exhibit that same self-control with his family? You know what's really odd? Don't raise your hand. Do any of you show more grace and more self-control with other people than you do your own family? I see those smiles. We are nicer to people that we don't live with. Because sometimes these lessons that we learn, the real crucible of them being exercised effectively is when we can do it with our family. So after a series of tests that Joseph puts his brothers through, they don't know who he is, but he recognizes them right away. He finally reveals himself to them, and they are terrified. And it's in this later, mature leadership that Joseph um, exemplifies that Joseph becomes a prototype of Christ, forgiving people for a heinous evil that they have committed against him. Chapter 45, verses 3 through 11. It says this, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God 
sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, get my father, say to him, thus says Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen by me. You and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, everything that you have. I will provide for you for there are five years of famine to come and bring you, your household, all that you have so that you do not come to poverty. All right, bring my father. It's amazing to see this incredible love and this incredible forgiveness. And what enables Joseph to do this is that he relates every experience that he has had in life, good, bad, malignant, benign, to God's sovereign plan. It it is so dripping with God-centeredness that four times in this passage he says, God did this. God sent me. God prepared me beforehand so that the line of the chosen people could be preserved. He sees God in everything, even in others' wickedness, which when you do that, it makes it easier to forgive. I understand. God can even use this. I can forgive you. He even gives his brothers the benefit of the doubt. Judah is the one that made the decision to sell Joseph into slavery. And Benjamin, who is Joseph's only natural brother, Joseph tries to get Benjamin to make sure he's safe because he's the only brother from a same mother and maybe he's hated the same way Joseph was. And when, when Joseph, in disguise, asks for Benjamin to come, Judah says, no, 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 we cannot deprive my dad of his other baby because the other one died, and so take me instead. Judah has learned his lesson, is willing to substitute himself into slavery for his brother Benjamin. And when Joseph sees his repentance, that aids the restoration process. One last snapshot, Genesis chapter 50, right after Jacob's death. In verses 15 through 21, uh, Jacob slash Israel dies, and the, the brothers go, ooh, this is not good. What if Joseph has just been pretending to be good to us, and now that dad's dead, he's going to even the score? And quite honestly, I can understand them thinking that, because that's the way they think. And so they, 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 they do something that is, is kind of crazy. They make up a story that supposedly their dead dad said on his deathbed. Now, the problem is the scripture doesn't confirm nor deny that this happens. Knowing the character of the brothers, I tend to think that this is a completely fabricated story. Joseph, you know that dad, with his dying breath, said, please forgive your brothers. Joseph hears this and he weeps. Why did Joseph weep? I think there are two possibilities and I think they're interwoven together. The first is, as the brothers are coming in begging for forgiveness on behalf of their dead father for their atrocities, they bow down before Joseph. And Joseph, in a weird way of spiritual deja vu, has already seen this in a dream decades before. And it's that dream that started this whole process of getting sold into slavery, of getting put into prison, and he weeps because he, see God, he sees God's faithfulness to his promises even through all of the hardships that he's endured. I think part of his tears are that his brothers think that his character is no better than theirs 
which is why they have to lie to try to sue for forgiveness. And Joseph says something really incredible. He says, guys, do not fear. Almost every time you find that word in the Bible, it's on the lips of the Lord or on the lips of one of his messengers and angel. Joseph says, do not fear. Then he says, I'm not God. It's not my room to judge. And the reason I don't want to judge is it's very clear. God has had a plan. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And then the last words that he says are the words that we hear on the Lord's lips. I will provide for you and for your children. Chapter 50 concludes, chapter 50 concludes by saying, Thus Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now rewind here just a little bit to think about the very first words of Joseph that we heard. He tattled on his brothers. Chapter 50, verse 21. Thus Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Oh, what a difference obedience to the Lord makes in how you react. What happens when your enemies fall into your hands? You see, Joseph's a pretty good dude, but he's not sinless. But by living constantly in the awareness that God is at work and sensing God's work in all of the details of life, Joseph's able to do some pretty amazing things. Number one, he has an incredible output. His work ethic is incredible because he knows that he's working for God and that God is going to bless his work. Joseph, for everything that he's been through, does not appear to have a ton of emotional baggage. And I think that there's, I think one of the reasons we have some of the health crisis that we have is because we don't trust God. And so when our circumstances fall apart, it's like our world has come undone. Is, it, is, is there the possibility, and I'm not talking diagnostically, but is there the possibility that if we trusted God more, we'd freak out less? Oh, you better believe it. He doesn't have a ton of baggage, and he even exercises restraint, self-control, with a wicked group of reformed sinners that are now firmly in his control. Friends, that's a work of grace. We're reminded of these words. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love, and here it is, self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He can say that God's spirit of power that he's given us, that is a spirit of self-control, makes it possible for us to share in suffering for the gospel. Can you handle it on your own? Heck no. But by the spirit of God, you can endure terrible things for the glory of God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray that you help us to have a vision of you that is so grand and glorious that instead of freaking out, we we respond in faith. That we understand our circumstances don't define us, our relationship to you does. That even the, the work of worthless men, the unrighteousness of others, can be used for the glory of God. It took years for this to be figured out on Joseph's end. He he saw it coming and could sense that you were doing something, but until the very end, I don't think he saw the, the, the full and final picture of what you were doing. And you were faithful to your word. 
Father, I pray today that if there are any that are tempted today to look at the inadequacy of their own resources and to freak out that today could be a day that they learn what it means to exercise faith, that they learn to trust you, that you are a good and always giving God who is looking out for your children because you care for us. Father, it's wonderful to recognize your provision. And as we have the opportunity to continue in worship and then to remember your sacrifice through the Lord's Supper, Father, I pray that you will inspire new faith in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.